Our passage this morning comes from the 26th chapter of Matthew. We'll read the first five verses. Let's hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the, place of the, high, in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Behind closed doors. What goes through your mind? What, what images do you see? What emotions do you feel when you hear that phrase, behind closed doors? What's in your mind? Politicians in a back room receiving money, making decisions from those who give them money. Or corporations where the CEOs gather in secret and figure out how to boost their profits at the cost of those who support them. Or media empires deciding who gets to see and hear what. Or newsrooms choosing what stories to run and from what perspective to run them. All of these behind closed doors tends to stir up negative emotions and feelings. Or perhaps news breaks out that that family that everyone so admired and respected was now discovered to have had abuse of all kinds in their house. And someone inevitably says, well, you know how it is. You never know what goes on behind closed doors. Behind closed doors has some strong negative connotations. And yet events behind closed doors are not a new thing. They've been going on for a long time, even in Jesus' day. We see it here in this passage in Matthew. And this morning we have the opportunity to to unpack it, to take a look at it. And we're going to do it from three different perspectives, from three different camera angles, if you will. First of all, we go behind the scene. We don't want to find out the who, what, when, where, and why. Our spy camera is set, it's hidden, and it has a clear shot of, of all of that. And first, there's the, the who. It's the chief priests. Probably not all of them, just, just a number of them, these, these high ecclesiastical officials who, who are in charge of the, the temple worship, regarded as the representatives of the Jewish people. And with them are the elders, the lay representatives, an important part of the Sanhedrin. They were sort of the supreme court, the supreme justice of the Jews. But our suspicions are roused because this is not the normal full group of leaders. It's only some of them. And they're meeting with Caiaphas. Ah, Caiaphas. He's a rude, sly manipulator. He's an opportunist. He doesn't know the meaning of fairness or justice. He's bent on having his own way by hook or by crook. He doesn't think twice about shedding innocent blood. He's adept at political and ecclesiastical maneuvering. And he's a genius at keeping in favor with the rulers at Rome. 
That's the who. Note where. They're gathered in the palace. But not in the usual place in the complex where they meet. That pikes our curiosity. Notice in this picture the difference, if you will, between the left and the right. The left is when they're in full session. The right is the unofficial session. You see the difference? They didn't want people to know that they were meeting at this point in time. And they knew that it might last late into the night. And technically it was not legal for them. It was not right. It was not allowed to be in the temple complex after dark. But in either case, it smacks of something shady and sinister. And what are they doing? They're assembling. Interesting word, isn't it? It's not a formal session, no minutes, off the record, so no one else will ever know it took place. And why? They're conspiring, scheming, plotting, planning. They're meeting unofficially, of course, to decide what should be done about Jesus. And the plotting is described by Matthew as by deceit. It's the only time in his gospel he uses that word. And it implies their guilt and Jesus' innocent. It's by deceit that they're doing this. In fact, it brings to mind some of the words of the psalmist. For I hear many whispering, terror on every side. They conspire against me and plot to take my life. Or the kings of earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. But we need to understand that this this plotting to, to kill Jesus is not a new development. It's been taking place for some time. It didn't originate at this meeting. That purpose was of long standing. It's mentioned once in Matthew, seven times in John. At the end of chapter 21 here in Matthew, we read the words, They looked for a way to arrest him. You see, at this clandestine gathering, they're trying to figure out the way to do that and do it in the best way where they don't get caught. They scheme to take Jesus by surprise and, and by trickery. They weren't concerned only to arrest Jesus and sort of get him away from the people. They wanted him done away with, dead, gone, finished, rid of him once and for all. And when was this taking place? Well, let's set the stage. Increasingly, Jesus' miracles had aroused the wrath of the leaders, especially his latest miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, which caused many people to believe in Jesus. And shortly after that, he he mounted a donkey and he rode into Jerusalem and they hailed him as king and the people got excited. And then the leaders' wrath was further stoked by the fact that after that triumphal entry, Jesus went and he cleansed the temple and he overturned the money tables and then he told parables which they knew were aimed at them and then he had seven woes that that he pronounced against the scribes and the Pharisees. And so now it's the Passover. And not only does that have religious significance, but it means the leaders were right in fearing the people. You see, Jerusalem's population would grow up to five times. It would swell during this time. It reminds me a little bit of For example, South Haven, which is less than 5,000 people, and then they get 25,000, 30,000 people for their festivals. There's people everywhere. And they knew that with this heightened anticipation of Jesus and this looking for a Messiah, the fever pitch of the people, that they could easily set off an explosion. So they needed to be shrewd, and shrewd politicians that they are. They decided to suspend action so the crowds wouldn't turn on them. 
You see, their will and desire was more important than the will and desire of the people. It's amazing what goes on behind the scenes, behind closed doors, isn't it? But it's time for a different view. Let's get from behind the scene now and go above the scene. Sort of like, like a drone over the surface. We, we want to see everything as, as God sees it. And the first thing we find is that God is not surprised. In fact, God is involved in the whole affair. It's part of his plan. Even Jesus was well aware of it. The first two verses we read. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover, now arrived, is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Those behind closed doors were unknowingly working to accomplish the very purpose of God in Jesus. They won't thwart God's plan. They will simply advance it. In their opposition to Jesus, they became the very instrument of the fulfillment of God's plan. And Judas's offer to hand Jesus over to them was simply the means by which they could do it. And so in God's providence, the connection between Passover and Jesus' death that Jesus had just predicted was on the way to being fulfilled. So here's what we need to remember. God is sovereign. The meeting took place in secrecy, behind closed doors, and yet Matthew eventually had all the information. How? A divine leak from heaven. God knew all along. God had set it up. God is sovereign. History is in his hands. He still rules. He's in charge. Nothing surprises him or catches him off guard. Similarly, God prompted another later scene that we read in the 11th chapter of John. John writes, Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, there he is again, spoke up and said, You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. (laughs) How right he was. Because they schemed behind closed doors, they opened up the doors of salvation to the entire world. God is sovereign, even behind closed doors. God is in charge, even behind closed doors. But now let's move from above the scene and let's get inside the scene. Let's, let's put ourselves in the action. After all, truth be told, most of us have held secrets behind the closed doors of our hearts. We hide things there so that others can't see. In our hearts, for example, have we not harbored hidden judgment? I mean, even now, we're quick to judge those scheming people in this assembly. They're no good, we say. But truth be told, 
Have we not similarly judged? Behind the closed door of our hearts, have we not harbored hatred or plotted revenge or manipulated others to get what we want at work, in our marriage, or other relationships? Have we not, truth be told, wished ill for someone, even if for a little while? Or condemned a a politician, or a Hollywood star, or some athlete for something they did or said? We need to think seriously about that. Like most of us, John Burke, who was pastor of the Gateway Church in Austin, Texas, assumed that he was not a judgmental person. But he decided that he ought to check that out and be sure if he was right. And so he tried an experiment. An experiment. For a whole week, he kept track of every judgmental thought he had. Let me read some of his conclusion. <clears throat> Judging others is fun. Judging others makes you feel good, and I'm not sure I've gone a single day without this sin. In any given week, I might condemn my son numerous times for a messy room, judge my daughter for being moody. Even my dog gets the hammer of condemnation for his bad breath. Now, some of you may be thinking, wait, are you saying that correcting my kids for a messy room is judging? No, but there's correction that values with mercy and there's correction that devaluates with judgment. I watch the news and condemn those, those idiotic people who do such things. Most reality TV shows are full of people I can judge as sinful, ignorant, stupid, arrogant, or childish. I get in my car and drive and find a host of inept drivers who should have flunked their driving test. And I throw in a little condemnation on our Department of Public Safety for good measure. At the store, I complain to myself about the lack of organization that makes it impossible to find what I'm looking for, all the while being tortured with Muzak. Who picks that music anyway? I stand in the shortest line, which I judge is way too long because, look, people, it says ten items or less, and I count more than that in three of your baskets. What's wrong with you people? And then he concludes, judging is our favorite pastime, if we're honest, but we're not. We're great at judging the world around us by standards we would highly resent being held to. Judging makes us feel good because it puts us in a better light than others. Perhaps we need to begin today by confessing our sin of judgmentalism. But behind the closed door of our hearts, we also not only harbor judgment, but truth be told, We shelter hidden hurt. How often have we withheld our pain, our sin, our struggles, our emotions from others? When someone asks you, How are you? do you answer honestly? Do you really want them to know what might be hidden in your heart? And on the opposite side of the coin, if you ask somebody, how are you, do you really want them to be honest? Are you ready to listen if they should decide to expose what's in their heart? Are you ready to take the time to listen? 
In that spirit, Cheryl Moyano wrote a striking poem entitled, Masks. In my bedroom drawer, neatly tucked away, what mask to church will I wear today? There are four from which I have to choose, but today I'll wear the one that hides the blues. The smiley mask, I've nearly worn out, it hides so well my fears and doubts. The spiritual mask works like a jewel that hides me when I've been mean and cruel. The mask I call my ace in the hole hides me when my heart is cold. Sometimes I wish others could see right past the mask and into me and help me find my way back home to God's dear arms from whence I've roamed. But others seem to do so well, my failures I wouldn't dare to tell. The question to myself I ask, I wonder if they too wear a mask. In that same spirit, my mind keeps going to a song that has been around for a number of months now called Truth Be Told. Listen to some of its words. Lie number one, you're supposed to have it all together. And when they ask how you're doing, just smile and tell them never better. Lie number two, everybody's life is perfect except yours, so keep your messes and your wounds and your secrets safe with you behind closed doors. But truth be told, the truth is rarely told. No, I say I'm fine, yeah, I'm fine, oh, I'm fine, hey, I'm fine, but I'm not. I'm broken. And when it's out of control, I say it's under control, but it's not, and you know it. I don't know why it's so hard to admit it, when being honest is the only way to fix it. There's no failure, no fall, there's no sin you don't already know, so, so let the truth be told. There's a sign on the door that says, come as you are, but I doubt it. Because if we live like that was true, every Sunday morning pew would be crowded. But didn't you say church should look more like a hospital, a safe place for the sick, the sinner, and the scarred, and the prodigals like me? But truth be told, the truth is rarely told. Oh, am I the only one who says, I'm fine, yay, I'm fine, oh, I'm fine, hey, I'm fine, but I'm not, I'm broken. And when it's out of control, I say it's under control, but it's not, and you know it. I don't know why it's so hard to admit it when being honest is the only way to fix it. There's no failure, no fall, there's no sin you don't already know, so let the truth be told. Can I really stand here unashamed, knowing that your love for me won't change? Oh God, if that's really true, then let the truth be told. Here's the challenge and what we need to remember. Truth be told, if we cannot and do not share with one another, we cannot fully be the body of Christ. The New Testament teaches that we are to care for all people, but that we are to have a primary concern and care for one another in the body of Christ. James urged Christians to seek prayer when they're sick so the body of Christ can pray for them and anoint them and bring healing to them and to confess their sins to one another so they can be forgiven and healed. Paul said in Romans 12:13, share with the Lord's people who are in need. And after Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, he said, now 
that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And John quotes Jesus repeatedly as saying, Love one another as I have loved you. You've probably seen a similar list before, but I think it's an appropriate time to share it again. It's a list of one another commands in the New Testament. Listen and look at them. Love one another. Accept one another. Serve one another in love. Pray for one another. Encourage one another. Forgive one another. Honor one another above yourself. Agree with one another. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Live in harmony with one another. Bear with one another in love. Confess your sins to one another. Carry one another's burdens. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Be competent to instruct one another. Use your spiritual gifts to serve one another. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The question is, how can we live out one another commands of Scripture if we hide our hurts in our hearts, if we keep our pain, sins, struggles, and emotions behind closed doors? There's a wonderful documentary called The March of the Penguins. It follows the emperor penguins on their incredible journey through ice and snow to mating grounds up to 70 miles further inland. It's narrated by Morgan Freeman with that wonderful voice of his. And the film captures the drama of these three-foot-high birds in the most inhospitable of environments. And once the males have reached the breeding grounds and have been given responsibility for the eggs, they set aside what is their natural competitive nature and they form a team for the sake of survival. And in the documentary, as a massive storm sets in, vicious winds pelt the penguins who now are huddled in a single mass. And the views alternate from close-ups of ice cake penguins to panoramic shots from above the throng. And then Morgan Freeman says, as the fathers settled into their long wait at the breeding grounds, the temperature is now 80 degrees below zero. That's without taking into account the wind, which can blow 100 miles per hour. Though they can be aggressive during the rest of the year, at this time the males are totally docile, a united and cooperative team. They brace against the storm by merging their thousand bodies into a single mass, and they will take turns, each of them getting to spend some time near the center of their huddle where it's warmer. I think that's an apt picture for the body of Christ. We need to be like the baby penguins inside the shell, and nothing's going to happen No life will truly begin until we crack open the shells of our hearts and expose ourselves. 
then we need to be like the penguins who are gathered around, ready to nurture and to care and to love when the insides are exposed. Truth be told, God's sovereign, and he knows what's inside our hearts. And he can and sometimes does just heal and care directly without going through any human agent, but he has designed the body of Christ to be the instrument and agents of his healing. He wants us to be the living illustration of what it means to live transparently in loving relationships. He wants the world to see in us his love in action because that's what will draw the world to Jesus. What the world needs is Jesus' love. But truth be told, it all depends on us. Will Hope Church be a place of open doors where people can truly come as they are knowing they will be loved with the love of Christ? If so, people will not be able to stay away. Maybe, just maybe, it's time for all of us to stop living behind closed doors. Let's decide right now to open the doors and be the love of Jesus in this place. Let's pray. Lord God, it is so hard to be honest with ourselves, let alone to be honest with others. And it is so hard to bear with someone else who's being honest. Lord, we need you. Oh, how we need you. How the world needs you. So take these words, take these thoughts that have been humbly expressed in all of their weakness, strengthen them, place them in our hearts and in our minds, and stir us, oh God, to become your people the likes of which the world seldom sees. Accomplish the purpose for which you have sent forth your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.